Hi, this is Robert Farrow and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe. We don't want to try to defend what we believe, but really evaluate it and see if what we believe is correct. If you have a question, then write the word question out, submit it in the the content or the comment section, and then reread it a couple of times. Make sure that it makes sense before you submit it. But we'd love to have you submit a question and join us live here. We're on four different platforms. We're on YouTube, we're on Facebook, actually three places on Facebook, and then we're on YouTube as well. So it's good to have you guys joining us. Our first question today has to do with church. Uh, It's how, and and it came to us uh, on a comment left on uh, one of our social media channels. Uh, How important is, is it for Christians to belong to a church? Now, this is a question that you're asking a pastor. And if you're asking a pastor a question like that, you're always going to get that it's important. But I think it is important to belong. And I like the way the question was worded because it distinguishes between attend and belong. In my opinion, most people that attend a church and don't belong to the church end up not being at the church very long. And they never really learn what God intended the church to be for us. The church, of course, is a body and we are to interact with one another. And it's one thing to go to church, sit and listen to a sermon. These days we can get sermons almost anywhere. It's another thing to go and actually be a part of that body. We constantly encourage people at Calvary Tucson, get involved in ministry, minister with people so you can get to know people, get involved in one of our connect groups, make connections throughout the church um, because our desire is that there would be very real fellowship. There's no way that we can hold one another accountable to sin. There's no way that we can bear with one another. By the way, the Bible says in Galatians 6, if someone is in sin, you who are spiritual, go to such one in a spirit of gentleness and meekness. I've seen people approach people in sin without that spirit of gentleness and meekness. And there's a reason that we're supposed to have that gentleness and meekness. It's because the desire is to see people restored to Christ. But the Bible uses the phrase koinonia. And over and over again, as you read through the epistles, you're going to read that we are to be in one accord, that we are to be of one mind. Let there be no divisions among you. In fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians, divisions are called carnal. Even though they fell behind in none of the spiritual gifts, they were called carnal. So um, yes, it's important to belong to a church. If a church has a formal membership, then join the membership. If a church has a membership like our church, we have a membership, but we want you to decide that you wanna be a part of it and then commit to the body and begin to attend, begin to get to know people, look for ways to connect, whether it's through our security team or the ushers, or again, our connect groups, which are small um, home Bible study Uh, Bible studies, fellowship, although they don't have to be that, just that. Um, They could be uh, hiking groups or mountain biking groups as long as they get together, pray for one another, have a short Bible study and focus in on the Word of God. But in doing so, you're going to get to know one another, being able to interact with each other. So the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 10, 26, do not forsake the gathering of yourself together, as is the habit of some. And it's because of this koinonia that God wants. He also wants us taking communion together and being in communion together. When you take communion, and a lot of churches have it on Wednesday night, we do. We have communion tonight. You could join us online for communion. You just get your communion stuff ready and join us. Or you can join us at our services. There'll be two of them tonight, one at the East and one at the West Campus. Uh, but When you take communion together, you're not only communing with people in that room who have the same love and desire for Christ, but you're communing with all the people in the past and all the people in the future who will commune together with Christ in this covenant cup. That's really important. 
uh, and it's really important to be involved in ministry together, doing the work that God's called you to do, letting the local church do what the local church was meant to be. The question is, is it important to belong to a church? Well, the church, the, name, the word for church is an interesting word. It means ekklesia, and an ekklesia was a group of people in a Greek city called out of the city and given authority. And when you are part of the ecclesia, then you are given authority. They had authority to send people to war. They had authority for who was gonna be their rulers. Um, and you and I have authority, we know that. We've been given the keys to the kingdom, which speak of authority. The person that has the keys has the authority to open the key and let you in. And so, and it's also been told that we will not, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And Jesus is gonna be the one that builds that ecclesia. And I encourage you, if you are just attending a church and you haven't had a chance to get involved, get involved, you're gonna make yourself vulnerable. And that is, well, it's dangerous, right? When, when you get to know people, the more people you get to know, the more people you open up to love, the more people can hurt you. If, if I don't know someone, and they say something negative about me, well, that's one thing. But if I don't know someone, I mean, if I know someone and they say something negative about me, it can hurt me deeply. And so that's the danger you take when you open up and have a relationship with someone. And so the Bible says uh, to abound in love and mercy, be tenderhearted, kind to one another, forgiving one another, and that love covers a multitude of sins. There are going to be offenses, but don't be so easily offended. There are people who are going to do major offenses that you need to separate yourself from that person unless there's repentance and all kinds of other things that go along with it. But um, that is really important. Now, it's also important, and I want to say, that you need to belong to a good church, a Bible-believing church, one that teaches the Bible, but also a church that doesn't have abusive leadership. Abusive leadership could be those who lord over you. The Bible tells pastors in 1 Peter chapter 5 that they are not supposed to lord over the flock, but they are to be examples. They are supposed to do it eagerly and not because they have to, not out of constraint. So find yourself a church where that's the pastor. That's the pastoral team. They love what they're doing. They're not lording over you. They're giving you direction. They have no desire to come in and make decisions for you, but help lead you in the right and wrong decisions that you can have, um, that you can make in your life. All right? So yes, extremely important to belong to a church. Can I add one more thing? And that is, uh, it's an interesting passage in Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 13, that says, to obey those who rule over you for they watch out for your souls. This means you gotta be really careful who you put yourself under. They're gonna watch out for your souls as ones who must give an account. I tell our pastoral team, our, our staff in general, God has entrusted us with the people at the church as co-shepherds and we'll have to give an account. Let's fearfully love them, care for them and not in any way abuse what has been given to us. There's a lot of different ministry ethics that need to be adhered to. If you guys have any questions about pastoral ethics or ministry ethics, I'd love to get into that. But I think I've taken long enough on this first question and I wanna thank the person that left that at one of our um, social media sites. All right, so I wanna go back and pick up our questions now. Uh, if you're joining us, it's good to have you here. Go ahead and say hi, I'd love to see who's here. Uh, also, if you have a question, put a question or a cue in front of it and uh, then write out your question, reread it a couple times, make sure that it makes sense. If you wanna put scriptural references in it, we'll take time to look up the scriptural references. Uh, a lot of times that's important for us in being able to really come to a good understanding of the truth, all right? So we have our first question today, and it comes from Andre, who joins us from YouTube. Andre says, in Jude 23 and 24, uh, so let me go ahead and go there in Jude 23 and 24. Remember, Jude only has one chapter, right? So 23 and 24, so Jude 1, 23 and 24. I'm gonna brighten up my phone here so I can see my Bible a little bit better. Um, 23 and 24, there we go. Um, 
all right? 22 to 23, actually. All right, there we go. So in Jude 22 and 23, is Jude saying God uses compassion to save some of us and fear others? Or is Jude telling us to, uh, to use compassion with some and fear with others? All right, so let's take time to take a look at this and see if we can work through it. I'm not, um, I don't remember the passage completely. Um, I'm gonna go all the way back to 2020 because that seems to be the beginning of this thought. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and here's your passage, and on some having compassion, making distinction, but on others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, even hating, um, excuse me, out of the fire, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Yeah, so I do think, Andre, that it is speaking of the way we are interacting with people whom are walking let me, in, in the church. And let me look at it again. Let me just see if I can get the context here of who this sum represents. Um, so it's, it's giving direction to you, and then it tells you, and on some have compassion, making distinction, but on others with fear, pulling them out of the fire, having even a garment defiled by the flesh. So we don't know who the sum is here. Uh, is this, I, there's, I guess there's a couple of options. This sum could be, a Christian needing correction, as in church discipline. And we have an, an ex, at least one example of that in scripture. Uh, and some of them may need compassion and distinction and others may need to have fear pulling them out of the fire. Um, it may be unsaved people. It might be people who think they're saved and they're not. Um, but I do believe he's giving us direction Right, so he's giving, he's telling us on and on some have compassion, making a distinction. Um, Jesus talked about not casting your pearls before the swine, and this passage would be a passage on discernment. You want to be able to discern what someone needs, uh, and you probably do this already. If there's someone that you know has been, I don't want to do that. If there's someone that you know that has been a little bit touchy when you've talked to them, they get hurt really easy, then when you approach them, you approach them really gentle. And I have people like that in my life. I have people like that at the church in leadership. And I know I've gotta be really gentle with them. Um, there's other people that I know I can be massively matter of fact with. And the people who I can be massively matter of fact with at the church are people that have a servant spirit, a servant's heart which I love that. They want to serve in the area that they are in and they want to be able to take the vision of whoever is over them, whoever may have authority, whoever's in leadership over them, and to be able to implement that vision if they can. And they will, they have just such a servant's heart and I love it. I love it because it's catching. The other people begin to do it when they do it. And then there's some people who seem to resist and fight you tooth and nail. And to be quite honest, those are really hard people to work with. Doesn't mean we're not gonna work with them, but it's really hard people to work with. So yeah, you gotta have a distinction between those that you have compassion on and those that you talk about some fearful things with. And I do believe uh, that that's what it is talking about. Um, your question was, is Jude saying God uses compassion to save some and fear to save others? I think that's correct, but that's not what this passage is saying. Or is Jude using, um, telling us to have compassion and fear on some? That's what Jude's saying. He's giving us direction. Um, but I do believe that God uses whatever someone needs uh, to work in their lives. All right, Andre, thank you very much. I really appreciate your question. Let's see what else we've got here. We have our next question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, question, how do we know that God, God's anointed how do we know who God anointed is how can we tell the difference from those who are and aren't? Is it our business? That's a good question. Also, what does the Bible say about test two babies? Thank you. All right, 
I, I love Jari that you get into questions every time you ask them. I love it. Um, how, how do we know who God's anointed and how can we tell the difference from those who aren't? Uh, is it our business? Uh, the anointing. It depends on what you mean, Jari, when you say the anointing. I think some people use the anointing in an unbiblical way. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying the Bible doesn't talk about it in the way they use the anointing. I have the anointing to be able to, you know, God gave me the anointing and I'm going to preach to you and don't you lay your hand on God's anointed. And that's a misuse. I think that's a misuse. Don't lay your hands on God's anointed. I think that's a misuse of that passage. We all have the Holy Spirit inside of us when we get saved. Then the Holy Spirit comes upon us and empowers us. Some people call that receiving the Holy Spirit. Some people call it being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Some people call it being filled with the Holy Spirit. Some say the upon experience of the Holy Spirit. Whatever you want to call it, the Holy Spirit does come upon us and empower us. I call that the anointing. It, the, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Uh, the anointing is for to do the things God's called you to do. Someone who is anointed can still sin and can still sin greatly. Some people are gifted, talented, rather than anointed. And we mistake their talents for anointing. They're charismatic, and I don't mean filled with the Spirit. I just mean they are charismatic personality. They People like them. They're able to... Uh, and there are people that are in the world that are like this, and that's how we know that people can uh, can be in church and do it. I know churches that have had pastors who are very successful. One of the largest churches in America had a pastor that was involved in all kinds of things that he shouldn't have been involved in. Obviously, the fruit would tell us that he was not saved. Now, I don't want to judge anybody. But the kind of fruit that things that he was doing was negative fruit. But when he gave altar calls, people came forward. Was that talent or was that an anointing? Was God honoring the people who were there? Had God gifted him? Kind of like Samson maybe? I don't know. And so I like your little add to this, Jari, where you say, is it none of our business? I am not in the business of saying who's anointed and who's not anointed or whether they're anointed for that position or not. I sure hope I'm anointed for the position that God's given me, that God gives me, has given me gifts and spirits and, a, and gifts and the spirit to be able to anoint me to do the work God's called me to do. That doesn't mean people can't question me, question what I'm teaching, speak against me, I, I think that we should search what people say what, as to whether or not it's true. And when you hear people saying, don't touch God's anointed, they're using a passage given to a king where you knew the anointing and trying to bring that over and claiming that they have an anointing. And um, some of them even say that people are going to die when they say bad things about them or attack them. Some of them go as, have gone as far as, and said that. And all of that is really, really dangerous to me. Now, what does the Bible say about test tube babies? Um, all right, so a test tube baby, as far as I understand, is taking the egg from the mother and the, the sperm from the father and putting them together in a, in a test, tube in, test tube environment, since I don't know exactly if it's a test tube or not, or artificial insemination, and where they get have, have help to be able to have a baby. Now, if it's a mother and a father are trying to have help to have a child and they're using technology to be able to do this, I have no problem with that. I don't think you could say it's biblical or not biblical because the Bible, it wasn't around in the biblical days. I do know, um, I do know the importance that God places on the human life being in the image of God, the importance of being formed in the womb. Uh, and remember, I, I believe a test tube baby is going to be put back into the mother 
I don't think they grow them outside of the womb, but you can hear my hesitancy because this is an area I don't know about. So I'm going to have to just plead a little bit of ignorance with that. Um, but I'm going to say it's ultra biblical, meaning the Bible just doesn't say anything about it. Doesn't mean it's, it's good or bad. I don't know. I think I would have to know more about exactly what's happening. I do know messing around with genetics scares me. And um, some of the things, the articles that I've read about messing around with genetics have been very frightening and it makes me think we are closer to the end than I could possibly even begin to imagine. Um, so, you know, science is going to take us in a lot of different directions. All right. So thank you, Jari. I appreciate it. Our next question comes from Daniel. Daniel, good to see you. Uh, Daniel and Keith are two of our moderators. I appreciate you guys being here and moderating, um, Daniel, and um, also enjoy working with you. Uh, question, can we use Acts 17.26 to prove that God does not want nations taking territory from each other? If not, how should we think about war and nations taking land? Well, I mean, I love Acts 17.26. So let me go ahead and go there. Paul is in Macedonia and he's made his way down from Macedonia, from Philippi and down through Thessalonica and ends up by himself in Athens. And while he's there, he goes to Mars Hill or the Aragopagus and he preaches there. And he gives what is considered to be one of Paul's greatest sermons, which is used oftentimes in seminary preaching classes. And um, in this text, in this text, he uses their own philosophers. He uses a statue that's in their midst that is as to know of the God with no name. And he says he's bringing the God of no name. But he gets into this section here in verse uh, 26. And it's just a great little passage that tells us a few things here. Um, so let's go ahead and go there. I want to put it up on the screen for you. All right. And um, so I'm going to start with verse 26. And he made, let me see if I want to go back a little bit. Um, so he's just talking about, let's see. Um, all right. Therefore, this is the, uh, the statue of the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives all life, breath, and all things. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. Here we go. And here's the verse. And has made from one blood every nation. That means we're all the same. From one blood, every nation. And I make that point because there are some who would teach that we are not one. Okay? Right? There's people who believe that there's someone else besides Eve, Lilith. Lilith. This tells us we are all made from one blood, every nation of man to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and their boundaries of their dwellings. Um, so the question, Daniel, that you have is... I'm sure has to do with when someone like the Nazis invade Poland or here more recently, the, um, the uh, Russians invade Ukraine, maybe China invading Taiwan. There's been a lot of other invasions that have happened. Um, and is that what God's talking about? I've always taken it to mean something slightly different. He made from one blood in every nation of man to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries in their dwellings. Meaning that the person, God puts them in a certain place. Not that he's drawn out maps for them to live in. But we do know that all the way in prophecy, we have boundary lines, we have maps that are given to us, not necessarily exactly drawn. We know that Israel was given their land. So I could see why someone would take it that way. But why did God give them these predetermined places? Well, the next verse tells us. So they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. So Paul says, he's, he's talking to Athens, to Athenians. 
He, he's talking to people who are Gentiles and he's saying, God's not far from you. And he put you where he put you that you might grope for him and find him. There's an interesting verse that some say, tell us that God's gonna save people from every tongue, tribe, language, and nation in the earth from the book of Revelation as you find all these people worshiping before the Lord from every tongue and tribe and nation. And so that people responded to the light that they were given, they believed God and they were saved, kind of like Abraham. Abraham never knew the name of Jesus, but he was saved. And that these people responded positively to the light that they received and the inner light that they were given and that they are saved. But God's desire is that they would grope for him. That's why he put them in the boundaries. So is God saying he made boundaries of nations or Daniel that he has certain places for you to be? And for me, he wanted me in Albuquerque when I was young that I would grope for him and find him and be saved. And then it says, for in him we live and move and have our being. So I, I kind of think that's not what it's talking about. Uh, I wouldn't be really dogmatic about it, but I kind of think that that is what it's talking about instead of um, talking about, you know, the boundaries and territories that people have. Now, how should we think about war and nations taking land? I think land grabs are awful. I think the Bible in the in, under the law, and remember the law, we're not under the law, but the law gives us this spirit of how we are to interact. We know that God told the Canaanites, told the Israelites to go and to destroy the Canaanites and to drive them out of the land, by the way. And we could talk about that at another point, but that was a specific call to them. They were not supposed, they weren't supposed to, that was because the Canaanites were being judged by God. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah with brimstone and fire. God was going to judge Nineveh. However, God was gonna judge Nineveh and kill everybody that was in there. And God judged the Canaanites by bringing in Israel. Um, certain Israelites went past the boundaries they were given in their tribes and God condemned them for it. And to, it, to, it seems in the Bible to cross over someone's border and to go in and kill them, especially innocents, is a bad thing. And so I think that's how we should think about war. I think God brought war in for judgment sometimes. He brought, he brought in Nebuchadnezzar from the north to judge Israel and bring them into captivity. That was God's judgment against them. It's interesting, the ones that he used to judge the Canaanites because they were doing these sins, started doing the same sins the Canaanite did, Canaanites did, and God brought them in. Many of them were killed, many of them were enslaved, and brought them into a worse position because the Old Testament law and what they were living under treated people that they had conquered much better than the Babylonians did. And so they were greatly mistreated from that. So yeah, I do think that there are certain boundaries that can be crossed and especially when there's a conflict and there's a military conflict and civilians start being killed deliberately and we now in our culture have defined them as war crimes when that happens and uh, i yeah and i think should be treated as such all right thank you daniel for your question i appreciate it i'll see you here in a little while uh andy and tanya have a question about heaven and hell. Is, um, is there different levels of heaven and hell? So the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, believe that there's seven heavens. The Bible never says that. Uh, Paul did say I was taken up to the third heaven, but it doesn't seem like it was a different layer of heaven as if, you know, I wanna be a really good person because I wanna go to the third heaven. I don't wanna be stuck in the first heaven or the second heaven but instead that the third heaven is where God dwells. The second heaven is where the stars are and the first heaven is where the birds fly. Those would be the three different levels of heaven. Um, are there different rewards in heaven? Yes. How will those rewards play out for eternity? Wish I knew. Uh, will people be treated different in hell? Yes. Jesus said, that some will be beaten with few stripes and some will be beaten with many and it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah 
than for Capernaum and Corazon, which were the two cities that were his headquarters. So, yeah. And what does few stripes mean? And what is the state of someone who is beaten with few stripes? Some, some people will say all sin is the same and that everybody is going to be treated the same in hell. I don't believe that that's the case. I think God's going to judge people according to the things they do. And there are things that are really bad to God. There are things that are an abomination to God. And God's going to treat people differently. I like the Johnny Cash song, When the Man Comes Around. It's got the line in it, not everybody's going to be treated just the same. And that's the truth. And this is one of the this is one of the problems that I have with the way that the church has taught hell. And if you start to teach anything any different, then they're so quick to call you a heretic. But they've gone back and taken the Greek concept of Hades or the the Middle Age concept of Dante's Inferno and they've brought that into hell. There are things that have to be allegorized in the concept of hell because you can't have both of them going on together. So the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. So we would assume then that person is tormented forever and ever. But the Bible talks about them being destroyed in hell. Jesus said in, in the most common verse of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he would um, that, that 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 he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. So either the smoke, the worm, the fire has to be analogy or the perishing and destruction has to be an analogy. They both can't be the same. Some people say, well, when he's talking about destruction, he's talking about the fire and brimstone or he's talking about the fire and the smoke and the torment that goes up forever and ever. Okay, well, that's not what destruction means. So it's an analogy. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm simply saying, we need to rethink the way we approach hell and realize that some are beaten with few and some are beaten with many. And there's sometimes it talks about an outer darkness being cast away from God, away from me, I never knew you, and literally being sent away from God. What will an existence be for the second death, for the people of the second death, apart from God forever? And it seems it'll be worse for some than for others. Now, when I teach this, people will inevitably tell me, you know, you're making it okay for people to not want to go to hell. I mean, you're making it okay for people to go to hell because they're thinking, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not going to be beaten with many stripes. I don't think I am. I think that the truth, when you get the truth and you lay out the truth that God's going to be just and fair to people and the way that he treats people, and I'm not saying that hell is not going to be eternal. I'm not teaching annihilationism. I'm not teaching universalism by any stretch, okay? but I am saying that people are treated differently. And when you think about being separated from the God of this universe forever and ever, I don't think I'm letting people, by telling them they're not going to have their skin filleted forever, that that is some middle, you know, dark ages uh, thought or that Satan rules over hell is some Greek mythology thought doesn't somehow, the truth is what sets you free. So let's teach the truth about what the Bible says about these things. All right. Thank you, Andy and Tanya. I really appreciate your question. Uh, that is really good. We have another question here from face uh, from uh, comes from us on Facebook. Um, is it Mika? Well, I'm not even going to give a shot at the name. All right, because I'm just going to butcher it. It's just good to see you here. All right. And it is. Uh, it says, how do you still apply the commandments to honor your father and mother with toxic parents? How can you forgive 70 times 7 but still establish boundaries with your family? Well, thank you, uh, Michalina. I hope that's right. Uh, thank you, Michalina. Um, I kind of understand because my father was abusive. My dad would blow up at the drop of a hat. We lived on eggshells around him constantly because he would blow up. Uh, we, um, he was, he would abusively, he, he would backhand me, um, me and my older sister, 
when, when there would be some kind of difference between us, he thought one of us was lying, he would beat us with a belt until we had bruises on the arm he was holding and from the, the top of our back to the bottom of our thighs. And sometimes we could compare bruises. And when you grow up in a situation like that and you understand this, you don't realize that it's wrong. I didn't anyway, maybe you did, I didn't. It wasn't until later on that I realized you don't treat people like that. You don't treat your kids like that. That that, and, and the thought that I had was my dad's a jerk. My dad was a jerk. Now my dad passed away when I was 13 years old. And the thought that I had when my mom walked through the door and I knew my father had died, he died of Lou Gehrig's disease. He was 6'1", 210. And when he died, he was 98 pounds and in a wheelchair, couldn't talk. So he had really, and this is at 30, that was 30, he died at 38 years old, extremely young. But when my mother walked through the door and I was 13 years old and I knew he died, in my mind, I said, good. And that comes from a toxic parent. So how do you apply the commandment to honor your father and mother? Well, I wish I knew, first of all, how old you were. Because my answer would be different if you are 15 or 16 or in your 20s. So that's one problem that I have here in the way that I would answer this. Um, how can you forgive 70 times 7 and still establish boundaries in families? Let me start with that one. I'm going to take it you're older because you're, you're talking about establishing boundaries. You can forgive them. 70 times seven. And that means just letting them go. Jesus said, when you are giving your gift at the altar and you remember that someone has hurt you or you have something against someone, forgive them. That, that's no repentance. They just forgive them. And Jesus forgave at the cross. And in the Lord's prayer, forgive and it will be forgiven unto you. So we do know there's a way in which we are to forgive people that haven't asked us for repentance. And that's just letting it go. Otherwise, bitterness grows in our heart and you let it go. But forgiving them 70 times seven doesn't mean you have to restore a relationship. If they haven't apologized, if they haven't said they're sorry, Jesus said, if someone offends you and they say you're sorry, seven times in one day, forgive them each time. So we also know there's something different going on that when someone has done something that you need to get yourself out of something that has hurt you, get your children to safety, that you need to get to safety, that you don't need to keep exposing yourself to um, a position where there's some kind of harm that's taking place with you. And that would be with a toxic relationship. And so you may let it go, but not never invite them over to your house. You may, you may separate. You may tell them I love you, but I can't be around you. I'm sorry. I forgive you. I don't, have, I don't hold bitterness against you, but I can't be around you. Now, I also want to say that I'm, I'm assuming your question is really being toxic. In other words, um, Michaela, you, you need to sit down and talk to someone that you can tell them the specifics so that they can get more specific with you. Maybe you're taking offense too easy. I'm not saying you are, okay? Don't, please don't be offended. I'm not saying you are, but I've, I've seen that where somebody tells me, you know, my, my parents did this and I'm like, that's not that bad. You know, or this person did that to me. That's not that bad. Assuming it's pretty bad, then you have the right to make boundaries and you would be able to tell that. I, th I don't think you're gonna need anybody to tell you that, all right? Um, how you honor your father and mother um, you don't bear false witness against them. You don't hate them. Um, if their request is reasonable, then you help them. In their old age, if they need help, you help them. If you need to put boundaries, you can still help them and still have boundaries. I think you could still honor your father and mother, which by the way, is reiterated in the New Testament. So it's something we're supposed to do, even when they're older. Uh, without putting yourself in a position where 
something that is toxic could end up hurting you. All right. And um, again, I think you really need to find some place that you can sit down, spend some time with someone uh, so you can really come to the place where you can get some direction from someone who's godly. doesn't need to be a pastor. could be. You could go sit down with a pastor, but find a spiritual person that you know. Our first question was, is it important for um, someone to be a part of a church? And this is one of the reasons, because I'm assuming in a church, you're going to know people who are mature, who are going to be able to give you the right direction. And hopefully they will with all of the questions. I've certainly heard the wrong um, the wrong direction given even by pe- people who are spiritually mature. But I think that you're going to get a lot more help that way. All right, Michaela, thank you very much for your question. Sorry that I wasn't able to be uh, more helpful to that. All right. So we have another question here from Antonia. Antonia says, can you break down the parable of the 10 minas in Luke 19? I'm not sure I understand the meaning. All right, well, let me go ahead and go there. Let me see if I can find that text pretty quick. I am going to be in Luke 19 in just a few weeks. I'm going to be in Luke 18 a few more weeks on the weekend. So I will be covering this in depth and that will give me a lot of time to do research because I I do a lot of research on exactly what these things mean. But let's go ahead and go there and let's read it and we'll see what we can learn from doing that. All right, so here is the parable of the minus. All right, Uh, now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of heaven Uh, because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain noble went to a far country to receive for himself his kingdom and return. So he called his 10 servants and delivered to them 10 minas and said to them, do business until I come. So I believe that this is money. And I'll look that up in a minute. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation to him after saying, oh, we will not have this man to rule over us. And so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money, so there we go, it's money, to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trade. And he came to the first saying, Master, your minus have earned 10 minus. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little and have authority over 10 cities. And the second he came saying, Master, you have your minas. Um, They have earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, "Uh, you will also be over five cities. He said to another saying, Master, uh, here is your minas, which I have kept um, away in a handkerchief for I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you do not deposit and reap what you had not sown. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting where I did not deposit, reaping where I did not sow. Why did you not put my money in the bank at my coming that I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10. But they said to him, master, he has 10 minas. That doesn't make sense. For I say to you that everyone who has will, will be given and to him who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. All right, let me get back to the page here. All right, so Antonia, um, so the minus are money and it would represent what God gives us. Not just represent the money that he gives us, which I do think that God provides for us and wants us to use the mammon of this world to make friends of heaven. But he's talking about our talents and I'm talking about literal talents, not talents as in money, skills, gifts, that God wants us to use. We have a responsibility to use them for the kingdom of God. And if we're a Christian who's afraid to step out and do whatever God could call us to do, and it seems like he would have been satisfied with interest, even if he just did a little bit. So we just want to be involved. And if we do a lot, then our reward is greater in heaven. If we do less, then our reward is in heaven. Our reward is less in heaven. But that God wants us to be doing something for him. And so for every Christian, we don't want to live our lives for ourselves, 
Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. What you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. In other words, God says, if you'll be about my business, then I'll be about your business. And so God wants us to be about his business and do the work that God calls us to be. This is not the only parable that Jesus talked about that made this point. There are other parables as well that God wants us involved in the kingdom, that God has given us responsibility, and we wanna do the work that God's called us to do. That when he, when, when he comes, right, he would say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. So um, that's uh, what that parable is all about. I look forward uh, to teaching it not long from now. We have a question from Psych Man. Psych Man, good to see you. Haven't seen you in a little while. Hope things are going well. Um, question, when, the first, when, when we first enter the kingdom, we must knock. Then we get a set of keys and can enter freely. I don't understand. I have keys and can let you in. We can only show someone the way? No. No? Question mark. All right, so Psychman, I'm trying to figure out exactly what you're asking here. I think you're talking about the passage where Jesus is with um, Peter in Caesarea Philippi, and he says, you are Peter, and on this Petra, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you, and I give you the keys to the kingdom, and what you bind on earth will be bound on earth, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So keys are a type of authority in the Bible. And when you go to places, you see that it's, it, that it represents authority and being able to open up. God says, I have the keys to death and Hades and, and, I, and I'm gonna shut and no one's gonna open them. I'm gonna open and no one shuts. He has the authority to be able to open and shut those doors. And we have it when we have the keys. I don't think the key is saying anything, psych man, about God letting us in and out, about us letting ourselves in and out of the kingdom. I think it's uh, talking about us knowing how people enter into the kingdom. And, the end of every service, I give an altar call. And not at every altar call do people respond. Sometimes nobody responds at an altar call. And people say, well, do you feel awkward when that happens? Not at all. I'm not the one getting people saved. God's the one touching hearts and getting people saved. I'm just watering and sowing seeds and throwing out a net and seeing what kind of fish can be caught that God wants to bring into the kingdom. So when I look at your question, uh, when we first enter the kingdom, we must knock. And so Jesus said, "Stand, I behold, to the lukewarm church, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. So I, I would agree with that. Then we get a set of keys to enter freely. And I think we go in and out. Of, we're, we're in the kingdom. We're part of the kingdom of God. And I don't think we go in and out of it. So I think that's why you don't understand. But we're the keys that we're given are keys to, to we're like today, we're like janitors. And we let people in. And if, a, if somebody comes to a janitor and says, can you open that door? The janitor's like, who are you? And they go, um, well, I'm just somebody off the street. He's gonna go, no. He has authority with those keys. And the picture was stronger in their day than with a janitor today, but the picture is still true with a janitor today. So I hope that that is helpful. And uh, you're welcome to um, put a, give us a follow-up question if I didn't hit that quite right. All right, um, psych man. So if you want to, yeah, you know, want to clarify that a little bit, I would um, be willing to take that in. So Lori says, uh, question: We were married 30 years ago, then divorced. And I'm sorry to hear that. I know divorce is hard, no matter what circumstances there were. We are back together and love one another. Well, great, I should just kept reading. Awesome. Although still living in separate houses due to the housing market. All right. I'm gonna stop there before I read the rest of it. So I'm not sure you guys can't be living in the same house. You could even live in both houses. Maybe you are. Maybe you just both have your own houses. Um, all right, he is an unbeliever. I am seeing some progress, okay? And does not want to remarry, all right? You're back together and love one another and does not want to remarry. Does this go against God's way? What if the Holy Spirit is working through me to reach him? 
It weighs on my heart. All right. Um, I think it's Lori. Laura. Lori. Um, yeah. I just want to take a minute and make sure that I answer you correctly, kind of gather my thoughts here. Um, we, we know the Bible doesn't want us to be unequally yoked. So you have a non-believer and you're not married to him. You guys love each other and you guys are together. It's good that you're living in separate houses and I hope you're keeping yourself pure. I think that that first of all needs to be said, okay? Um, and so you can forget, I should have read the rest of it. You can forget what I said about you could stay at his house or him in your house. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that now at all. I'm recanting all of that. There needs to be purity. That's first. And I think you're going to be able to hear from God. If, if, if there's unrepentant, unconfessed sin in your life, you're going to have trouble hearing from God because that's going to separate you from God. It's like Peter with his feet washed. Um, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, I can, you can have no part in me. Then wash my head and hands. I don't need to wash your head and hands. I need to wash your feet. So Peter was already saved, but in his feet needed to be clean because and that was the analogy he was giving us. And so should you remarry this unbeliever? And, and again, I'm sorry. I really am. And I've done this twice now in this, in this Q&A, but I, I have to pass without knowing more information. The, um, a, a quick Q&A is not the place to be able to do this. Um, a, a meeting where you could sit and doubt and talk with a biblical woman counselor, biblical, even a man counselor, but it's biblical, um, a pastor who's very understanding and can listen to the details of your account because they matter here and listen to what happened, why you separated, why you're not married yet. So I would want to know these things. I would want to, I would want to sit and listen, try to gain all of the information that I could be able to digest that before I told you that you are either legally or still in God's eyes, still married to this man or not. So there's some other information that needs to be known, right? So in the Old Testament, a man couldn't divorce a woman and then bring her back in again because when he divorced her, he mistreated her. In the New Testament, Jesus said, if a man divorces a woman and marries another woman, he commits adultery. And then there's a separation in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for the sake of restoration. So without going into more detail with you, and there's a lot of really good counselors. And if you want to wait until this is posted, I was trying to think of how we could do this. Um, I, I'm just gonna, I'm not sure where you are. I'm not sure where you live. I find, a, I, I just hate to leave it that way because I feel for you and I know you need direction and you do. So find either a, a good biblical counselor, and there's a lot of them out there that are really good. Find a church, a, a leader, a pastor, or you might know someone who's spiritual that you can be able to sit down and talk to, give them the details, and I think you could get, you're gonna be able to get direction from it, all right? But make sure that you are not sexually involved. That's gonna help you get clarity as well, all right? And it's just, you need to keep yourself pure, and that's really, really important, okay? So thank you. Um, Lori, for your question, I appreciate it. I just feel like I was not very helpful there, and I'm sorry, but there's only so much that we can do in a Q&A that, uh, that is like this Q&A, where we are just answering, you know, we're answering questions kind of off the cuff, and uh, you can't really, uh, you can't really um, get into a lot of details on certain things. So we have another question from Keith. Keith, hello, Keith, how are you? Um, Keith is one of our moderators. And uh, so it's good to see you as always. He says, my family and I have been blessed watching The Chosen together. Jonathan Romy, I think it is, who plays Jesus has been promoting a meditation app 
What are your thoughts on his promoting meditation? Uh, I'm sorry, Keith, I don't know what meditation app he's been promoting. I do know The Chosen has been extremely effective. Many people have been touched by it. And I think anytime you get somebody who's making a program like this and is going to have some artistic liberties, they're going to do things people don't like. Um, I didn't like when, and I haven't seen this rest of the second season, but I, I didn't like that I hear people say that he was rehearsing what he was going to say on the Sermon on the Mount. Or um, if I understood it right, that he stayed at the woman at the Wells house when he went to the city. And I could be wrong about that. I might, I watched it cursory, so it just I just couldn't um, maybe not have understood it. But those kind of things fall in. I wouldn't have done that. Um, there is some controversy over Dallas Jenkins saying that the Jesus of the Mormons is the same as the Jesus of Christians, and they are not. The Bible says that some are going to come to you teaching different Jesuses, and the Jesus of the Mormons is a created person who became a God, just like Yahweh was a created person who became a God in Mormonism, uh, just like Satan was a created person who became a God, and that Satan and Jesus are spiritual brothers. Now, now some will defend that in Mormonism by saying, well, we're all spiritual brothers and sisters, but there was a special way that Jesus was a spiritual um, born spiritual person, and a special way Lucifer was, or Satan was, or Lucifer in the Mormon belief because they believe that's his name uh, and that they were brothers. This is not the same Jesus. And I think The Chosen is great. I think it's it's moving. I think they do a lot of things right. I wish that Dallin Jenkins would come out and say something about what he said when he said that, you know, I love my brothers and sisters in, in, in the LDS church and we serve the same Jesus. If he just came out, and I know he's probably he's never going to hear this, but if he did hear this, people are very forgiving. And if you just came out and said, I made a mistake. I was in over my head. I didn't know what Mormons believed about Jesus and, and, and that it was that different from the Jesus of the Bible and it's a different Jesus that people would come bringing. And I'm sorry, and I don't believe that. I don't believe it's the same Jesus. The reason this is so important for the chosen is because who is the Jesus that Dallas Jenkins is presenting in The Chosen? If he thinks that the Jesus of Christianity and the Jesus of LDS is the same, then which Jesus is he presenting? Is he trying to mix them together and present both of them? Is he presenting the creator of the universe? Or is he presenting a created being who became God like Yahweh was a created being who became God. So this to me is a much more important question than whether or not Jonathan Romy has a meditation app or has been venerates the dead, which is another problem that they come up with. I think there's going to be a lot of criticism when you do something like The Chosen, and I, and I understand that. And I am not watching it now. I watched the first season. I didn't like a couple things in the first couple, you know, and, and, and a pastor is going to do this. A pastor who knows the Bible really well is going to go, not right, not right, not right, not right. And I thought they crossed some lines they shouldn't have crossed as a pastor. And so I just backed away and I haven't said anything negative about it. I, if he came out and said, I didn't, I, I was wrong. People are forgiving. I would watch the rest of it. I hope he does because I think the potential for this thing to be used around the world strongly is really, really good. But I think his statement that we're, we serve the same Jesus as the LDS church does is not, is not a good statement. I think that there's a, a huge problem with that and certainly causes me to not want to watch it and I think probably a lot of other people. And I know he said, well, you know, LDS won't watch because there's evangelicals and evangelicals watch because there's LDS involved. I don't care about their involvement. I don't care if you have Muslims, atheists, 
um, Hindus working on the project. That doesn't bother me at all. At all. It doesn't bother me that LDS might watch it and be moved by it. But when you say that Jesus is it's the same Jesus, that's the problem. So I'll look into the meditation app um, just because I am interested in it now. I know that Dallas Jenkins did a Q&A just a few days ago and I was hoping that he would come out and say, I made a mistake. That's all I had to say. I made a mistake. The LDS Jesus is not the same as the, as the, as, as the, the creator of the universe, the Logos, the Son of God. It's not the same. And uh, when they say he's the Son of God, they mean something else. There's a lot of other sons of God. With, they, they don't mean the Son of God, like as in Jesus is. When the LDS says that, the Mormons. All right. So thank you, Keith, for your question. I appreciate that. Um, and um, I'd love to have your feedback. If you have some thoughts on that, um, whatever you get right now, we're going to be done here. We are done here, actually. I'm just kind of scroll down here. Um, uh, so I see a couple other questions on here. I'm going to go ahead and take your questions and put them in a queue for the beginning of other Q and A's, but uh, also for the questions that I still see that are here, and there's a, there's a few of them, um, you can resubmit them. So we will have a Q and A on Saturday. Uh, try to join us early in the Q and A, so you can submit your question in that way. You don't write it out, but none of your questions will go to waste. I will write these down. I have a list, and then I send them off uh, and get the questions back and then I use them for first questions, all right? So you might not have it as a question right away, but yeah, I see Albert here with the question. So there's quite a few questions as well. Um, I'll get this sent, this log sent to me and I'll take time to go through them. But I really appreciate you guys joining us today. I wanna to invite you to our church service tonight. We're taking communion, so get your stuff ready, get your bread and your juice ready and join us. Uh, you can do that on YouTube, CalvaryTucson.com, uh, Roku, uh, Apple TV, um, Facebook. You can sit down and join us. Uh, I when I when I watch services, when I join live services, I like to do it through YouTube if they have it, um, just because it's just so easy to put on the big screen TV. Um, and um, we'd love to have you join us. I'm going to be talking tonight about contentment. The title of our message is the surprising satisfaction of contentment. Talking about when you settle down and you go, you know what? I'm content with what I have. I don't need anything else. I'm content with it. Then there's some satisfaction that's there. We seem to be just trying to get more stuff. The Bible says in all of your getting, get the Lord. We, we spend our whole life getting. There's ob it's obviously not saying you can't buy anything new, but a contentment, I'm content with my car. I'm content with my house. I'm content with what God's given me. Content with my wife. I'm content with, I'm content. There's a surprising satisfaction to that. And we're going to be talking about that this evening uh, in just a couple of hours. All right. So God bless you guys. Thank you for joining me. It's good to see you. Thank you guys for all of the encouragement. Um, I love to get that encouragement from you guys. Uh, it, it, it means more to me than you know. All right. Um, a lot of times, you know, they say that when you get one negative, um, when someone is negative with you one time, it takes 10 times somebody to be positive to help you and um, encourage your pastor. All right. And I'm not telling you to encourage me, although, okay, but encourage your pastor. Yeah, he does need it and he really will appreciate it. All right. Um, pray for Ukraine. We have a fund, a Practical Christian Living Foundation, which is the arm of Calvary Tucson that reaches out in the five areas Jesus told us to, feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, clothing the naked, visiting as those who are sick and in prison. Uh, and we do that, there's, the, there's no one runs it. There's no cost that goes to run it. Whatever you give to it goes to whatever we're dealing with. 
and we partnership with other ministries. So those ministries might have overhead costs and we're partnering, partnering together with Samaritan's Purse and uh, to be able to help refugees with medical and physical needs. So if you would like to give to Practical Christian Living for the Ukraine project, go to calvarytucson.com. There's a little pull down, it'll say general fund. There's a little pull down menu, pull that down and hit Ukraine project. And whatever you give there will go to the Ukrainian people. All right. Uh, you can also text ready, uh, excuse me, text my offering to 94,000. And again, that's going to get you to a place where you could pull down and, um, and, and give to the Ukraine project. If you're wanting to give to the Ukraine project and you can't give it through the texting, then go to our webpage and do it there. And for sure, you can pull it down under easy tithe, which is the system we use very secure uh, and for people to tie to the church and to give to the projects that we give to. And people are always generous when we do practical Christian Living Foundation um, projects. All right. So God bless you guys. It's good to see you. Stay close to Jesus. Be in love with him. Be hungry to learn his word and know more about him. I'm signing out now. I'll see you guys later on. See you on Saturday.